0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I know the worship team planned that song probably weeks ago. That's exactly what I needed to hear this morning. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter one. Is it well with your soul? I know it's easy to, to sing a song, but maybe a little bit harder to wrestle with where you are, where you really are. Not, not the facade that you, you put on for everyone to see, the mask that you put on. I'm talking about the real you. Is it well with your soul? I think with um, all that our community has experienced over the last week, um, I think that's something you need to be wrestling with. And if it's not well, then what are you going to do about it? We're going to walk through the book of James over the next few weeks. And uh, today, again, um, the Lord put this on my heart weeks ago. Um, it's, it's amazing God's timing in things. So let's pick it up in James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Father, we pause this morning and we we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Father, that no valley we will ever walk, we will ever walk alone. Thank you, Father, that no matter what difficulty we may face, we will never face it in our own strength. Father, I'm grateful that you're not off just somewhere running the universe, that at the very moment I put my faith in you, you indwelt me. So Father, whatever I have to face, or whatever any other follower of yours has to face, We face it in your power and in your strength. Father, we pray that above all things today, we would worship you and honor you. You've been far better to us than we've ever been to you. For while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And Father, you have brought me out of darkness into the light. You've promised me eternity, and that promise you will keep. But in the meantime, Father, between now and the time you take me home, you've given me a work to do. And not just me, but everyone who follows you. And Father, may we not be set aside by anything we have to face, that we would keep following you through endurance, perseverance, bringing honor and glory to your name alone. Father, we love you. We thank you. We seek your face today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're familiar with the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and you're familiar with their stories, maybe you've caught this, and maybe you haven't, but when you go back in the Old Testament, you look at these patriarchs, you'll see God make a promise to them. And God will detail those promises to that particular individual, and then the next thing you know, this person sets off on their journey to accomplish what God has called them to accomplish, and literally, sometimes within days of when the promises were made, this person finds themselves in absolute distress, trouble, difficulty, pain. And so when you read through the Bible, you find at the same time, in, in equal amounts, people who are, who are following God or following Christ faithfully and equally at that same moment, they are experiencing great pain, great difficulty, great persecution, great troubles, and great Hard mountains to climb. And that that confronts us in our Western Christianity because for a long time, for too long, quite frankly, there's a gospel that's been proclaimed, that's no gospel at all, that if you just follow Jesus and you put your faith in him, that everything's gonna be easy. And folks, it ain't easy. And oftentimes when I'm sharing the gospel with folks, I'll tell them I'm very upfront about this. That the greatest choice you will ever make in your life is to put your faith in Jesus. It's the greatest adventure you will ever go on in your life. And it is the greatest joy and the greatest peace you will ever find. But make sure you understand that on the other side of putting your faith in Jesus and surrendering all to him, you are taking up a cross and following him. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? The true gospel is not a gospel that hides the hard stuff in the back room. No, the gospel brings it all out, puts it on the table and says, yes, following Jesus is a whole lot harder than following the world, but following the world will send you to hell. Only a resurrected Lord will give you eternal life. So as we look at all of these patriarchs in the Old Testament, we see a mixture of great pain and hardship. Take Abraham and Sarah, for example. Sarah, barren, wanting to have a child but couldn't have one. God makes the covenant promises to Abraham. And one of those promises is that, Abraham, you're going to have offspring. So many, it's like the stars of heaven or the pebbles of sand on the beach. And of course, Abraham and Sarah's like, well, God, you know, we can't have children. God says, you're going to have a child, even in your old age, and it's going to come from your own body. And at one point, Sarah even laughs about that. That child finally arrives, that child of laughter, right, in their old age. And then that child grows up somewhere right around 14, 15 years old. You know what God does? Now, in all of that, in all of that, there's still pain. Even at, even at Isaac's birth, there's all kinds of pain and trouble. But, but it's when Isaac gets to be a teenager, maybe a preteen, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son. I want you to take him up on that mountain over there, and I want you to sacrifice him. Great promises, great hardship. Think about Joseph. Joseph had dreams of greatness. Those dreams came from God himself. Dreams that that depicted Joseph as being in command of his older brothers. That that Joseph not only was going to have command over his brothers, but even his father and mother were going to bow at his feet. And Joseph was enthralled as a teenage boy about all of that power and all of that fame. And what could it mean? Well, the brothers were less enthralled about that. And the brothers eventually decide that they've got to kill this brother. Promises of God, great hardship and pain at the same time. Uh, Joseph isn't killed by his brother, it's only by his oldest brother Reuben that he wasn't put to death right there in the desert. They sell him to some Ishmaelite traders, and then the next thing you know, Joseph spends a long portion of his life imprisoned as a slave. It's years before. Joseph becomes the second in command, and that dream is fulfilled where his own brothers are bowing down before Joseph. Think about Moses. Moses is told by God that he's going to lead the nation of Israel to freedom, and that he's going to lead them to the promised land that he, he had promised to Abraham. So, so Moses, under the direction of God, goes into Egypt, and, and God unleashes plagues upon Egypt, and finally the Pharaoh relents, and Moses leads this great nation to freedom, And they get out in the desert, and eventually they make it all the way to the border of the promised land, and Moses had been told that that land flows with milk and honey. Everything that they would ever need to sustain themselves is there, and they can live as a nation. You know what ends up happening? They end up wandering around the desert for 40 years because they didn't have enough faith to go in. God says, Moses, you're going to get to lead a nation, but that nation is going to cause you tremendous pain, tremendous hardship. Joseph, you're going to be in charge. You're going to be in control. But Joseph, between now and then, there is a hard road you've got to walk. Think of David. David set apart at 15 to be the king of Israel. 15. But what does David do for the next 15 years? He's not reigning in some big palace somewhere, he's on the run for his very life, living in caves. Having to struggle to survive day to day. Is this what you call me to, God? Is this, is this the kind of kingdom you call me to? You read the Psalms, and you see David's pain and his struggle of how he's trying to reconcile in his mind. On the one hand, he's called to be a king, but on the other hand, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Jeremiah, called by God to proclaim a message at age 17, spends 40 years preaching, not one convert, and eventually the very people he's preaching to try to kill him. Jump over into the New Testament. The disciples were told by Jesus, he says, if you'll come follow me, I will make you fishers of men, and you will inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds pretty good. They had no idea that the next three and a half years they wouldn't have a home. They'd have to walk away from all their family. Even the very Jews, the very religion that they'd grown up in, rejected them and wanted to kill them. All to end up at a cross on a hillside as their teacher, their rabbi, bleeds to death as a common criminal in front of the world watching. You get where I'm going here? Jesus has never one time called you to comfort. He provides comfort. But his end goal in your life is not Comfort. His end goal in your life is just not so that everything is fresh and lovely on this side of eternity, and then we walk into heaven, and then eternity is just that much better. Everywhere I look in the Bible, and everywhere I look in the world of people following Jesus, they have trouble and pain. So what are we to make of this? Well, James writes this letter, probably one of the oldest letters in the New Testament. This one was probably written 40, 50 maybe, early, very, very early in the New Testament church. And if if James was alive today, and if James was one of your friends, and and James and you would would exchange text messages or emails, James would be the guy that every email you get and every text you get is in all capital letters with all kinds of exclamation points. Because that's exactly how his letter reads. It's all caps from here in. (laughs) James, the letter that he writes, is extremely practical. A matter of fact, there's been a lot of debate about the theological value of the book of James, which quite frankly I think is an insane argument. But nonetheless, in this book we have practical faith. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, that should look like something in the world. It should be different than what you were before. James is gonna map that out for us. He's gonna talk about a whole lot of things. We're gonna walk through it. Today he's going to talk about the section we're in today where he's going to address trials and hardship. James only believed in Jesus after the resurrection. I believe that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you may not realize this, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Mary and Joseph had other children. James was one of those children. There was also some other sons. There was a son named Joseph. A son named Simon, and get this, there was another son named Judas, of all things. They even had daughters. So Jesus has some half-siblings. Why do we call them half-siblings? Well, Joseph and Mary come together, they have children and that's who they are, Joseph and Judas and James and some of the girls. But remember, Jesus is not the result of Joseph and Mary coming together. Jesus is the result of the Holy Spirit allowing Mary to conceive while she was still a virgin. So, it is true that James would only be Jesus' half-brother. And James struggled with Jesus, his half-brother, being Messiah. He didn't believe at first. It was only after the resurrection that he believed. But after he believed, after he placed faith in Jesus, James was a critical leader all through the early New Testament church. Matter of fact, Paul refers to him as a pillar of the New Testament church in Galatians. James became the key elder for the church in Jerusalem. By the time you get to Acts 15, James is is one of the critical leaders who's really helping the church to understand what it's going to be about. Josephus, who was a historian, writes that, that James was put on trial for his faith in Jesus and in the middle of that trial, they got so angry at James' faith that they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple. Fell at least probably 100 feet or more. But he didn't die. So these Pharisee leaders come down, they find out that James is still alive, so they say, okay, let's, let's stone him to death. So then they take James while his legs are broken, and they begin to stone him. It still didn't kill him, and you know what they did? They finally just gave up, grabbed clubs, and beat this man to death, simply because he believed in Jesus. Now we don't know all that for sure, but that's what Josephus tells us and other historians. Let me ask you a question. This is what we want to wrestle with today. What is a trial? Where does it come from, and what is the point of it? At the same time, what is a temptation? Where does it come from? And what is its purpose? We're going to find out today that in the Greek language, there's actually not a whole lot of difference between the Greek word for trial and temptation. So what we're going to look at today is the difference between those two. And here's the other big thing I want you to wrap your arms around this morning. That within every trial, every trial that we go through, there is the potential for a temptation to mislead us. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that verse is one of the verses in the entire New Testament that makes us go, huh? (laughs) What? I mean, it's rather perplexing, isn't it? Our American culture and our American Christianity puts at the top of our list as being comfortable, being at ease. If, If we can reach that place of perpetual vacation, then so be it. This kind of verse really hits us between the eyes because James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if, not if maybe somewhere in your walk with Jesus you might have a bad day. Maybe somewhere along the line, It's probably not going to happen, but, but if you follow Jesus low enough, there could be the slight possibility that you might have to go through some hardship. No, he says, when. It's almost like it's inevitable, isn't it? And you know that it is. He says, when you meet these trials, here's the crazy part count it all as joy, my brothers and sisters. How could that possibly be? Well, James is obviously saying to us that there is some great benefit in these trials. And he tells us right here. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. And he says, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says, first of all, A trial is different than a temptation because a trial has something good for you as a Christ follower. So here's the first thing you gotta understand. Trials will test our faith. That's a good thing. Somebody somewhere said, I don't know why I read this or I give credit to this author, but I don't know who it was. Somewhere, somebody wrote these words. A faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Your faith, the only way that it can grow, the only way that it can mature, the only way that you can grow up in Jesus, is to go through hardships and trust God in the middle of those hardships. James says, "The count of joy because in that hardship, God is doing something in your life. What is He doing? He's producing endurance. You will never learn to endure unless you have to, here's a powerful thing to think about, but it's really simple. Until you have to endure, you haven't learned to endure until you have to endure. Guess where you learn endurance? Well, through trouble. That's the economy of the kingdom. That's how it works. You don't become a you don't become a world class athlete without paying a price in the gym. You don't become a star football player until you've taken the hits on the field. You don't become a doctor in a medical facility until you went through the rigors of the medical school. And so it is, in your faith, the very moment you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus says, now, come and sit with me in a penthouse and have all your needs met. No. Jesus says, take up a cross of shame and death and ugliness and follow me. James is clearly saying that trials are beneficial. James is clearly saying that to grow up in faith, to be complete, to have complete, strong, powerful faith. As I, as I look across this congregation, I know some of your stories. I know where you've been, I know some of the hardships you've went through. And I can tell you what I see in you is strong faith. And you know why you've got that faith? It's because you've been through some stuff, some hard stuff. And I look up to you because you endured. And you're an example for me and everyone else who sees your life. James says that trials have good. But here's the thing. Not only are trials from the hand of God through his hand into your life, but guess what? Temptations always show up in trials. Always. At the very moment, the pain of the the difficulties crushing in, what do we begin to do? We begin to look for a way around it. And there are temptations aplenty when we go through trials to get us to short-circuit the whole process of what God is doing and to escape from this, to get out of it. Did you know, and I've done this, you've done this, that you spent a whole lot of time in your prayer life praying for God to remove something that God wants to use to grow you up? That we have spent a whole lot of time asking God to deliver us out of the very thing that God is going to use to build our faith. Did you know that? We have temptations to undermine the very faith that God is trying to build. We try to escape the trial. We try to run from it. in our pursuit of comfort and happiness at all costs. We will short circuit what God's trying to do. Some of you have been going through the same trial over and over and over again. This is gonna be a revelation for you today. You've been going through the same stuff over and over again for years. You know why you're still going through that? It's because you keep trying to sidestep it. And God says, nope, I'm not gonna let you do that. Because what I'm doing in that trouble, what I'm doing in that pain, is far more important than you being comfortable. Heaven, you can be comfortable. In heaven, you can have all your needs, met. In heaven, you'll be able to stroll the streets of gold and be fine. But right now, in this place, take up your cross. Whatever that cross is for you to bear. So at the same time we have this trial, at the same time we have a temptation. A temptation to run, to escape, to get out of it. Look at the next part of what he says here. Pick it up there in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him but ask in faith. Now it sounds like James is just going off on a tangent here, right? He's talking about trials and then just a few verses later now he's all of a sudden talking about wisdom and, and just a little bit he's gonna start talking about poverty and wealth and it seems like James is just all over the place here, that's not the case. Where in your life have you needed wisdom? Where in your life have you needed to hear from God? Where in your life did you need guidance? Was it not in the middle of the trial itself? God says, those trials that pass through my hands into your life to build endurance in your life, it's in that place, it's in that place that you have all kinds of questions. Folks, I've got a lot of questions from this past week. I've got a lot of questions. As I know that many of you do. What James says to me, he says, if you lack wisdom, come to me. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to answer all of your questions. It doesn't mean that, that God's on the hook to just fill in all the blanks for you. He, he most often doesn't do that. But what he does do is when I get into his word, when I get around God's people, when I hear psalms like we just sung, when I, when I talk with him, you know what he does? It not, not necessarily the answers to all my questions, but what he does is he gives me perspective about this world. I learn from God's word and from his wisdom that we live in a broken, fallen world, and in a broken, fallen world, People get in dark places. And in those dark places, with that pain and the hurt that they're going through, sometimes they don't see any way out. And it's in this sin cursed world where people end up in places where they feel like there's no way out. It's from God's Word that I learned that in this universe, there is somebody in control. In the middle of what seems to be chaos, there is one who holds the universe in his hand. And not only does he hold the universe in his hand, but he holds me in his hands. When I go to him seeking wisdom, he he always gives me what I need in that moment. Not that all my questions are answered, but I I begin to understand and see things from his perspective. Trials require us to seek his wisdom. So, So trials test our faith. Trials force us to run to him, because quite frankly, you don't have the answers, do you? Whatever you're going through, you don't have the answers for what that, what that means in your life. You, you can't make head or tails of it. But when you run to him, the only thing that anchors your soul, you get anchored. You get, you get tied down. You're not just blown to and fro by what the world's saying. You have, well, perspective. And from that comes peace. But you know what the temptation is in the middle of the trial when it comes to wisdom? Well, doubt. Look at verse six. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. I'd love to say to you, I'd love to say that every time I've come to the Lord in prayer, I've come to him without doubting, but I haven't. There's been times I've come to him and and I was filled with doubt. But what I found is, is that when we take that doubt that we're wrestling with and we put that before God, honestly, transparently, and say, God, I'm struggling with that. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to minister in this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to act. I don't know what to believe. He said, that's okay. But guess what? This thing that I'm putting you through is for that very purpose, to help you to rely on me and not yourself. The temptation is to run to the world. The temptation is to seek out their truth, which is no truth at all. The temptation is, is that we take these doubts and we run to a world that is also filled with doubts, and, and their doubts pour gas on our doubts, and the whole thing spins out of control. And that is why we get in really dark places, because we hear what the world's saying, it seems to make sense, but the way I live that out, it just doesn't work. It can't work. So what do we do? We end up going in this big spiral of darkness and, and hurt and pain because the world has no answers, but we keep running to them anyway. God says, come to me. I've got the wisdom you're seeking. I've got the perspective that you're seeking. I'm not going to answer all your questions. That'll come later. But for now, just trust me. Listen to what I've already told you. Put your faith here. Put your trust here. Notice what he says about this. He says, the one who is like a wave on the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You ever been there? Oh, I've been there. You invest in something other than God's truth and next thing you know, you have no truth at all. You have no perspective. You don't know which way's north. If you've ever, if you've ever tried to look at a map or you've tried to, to use a compass and you, you can't determine where you are, then how do you know how to get to where you're going if you don't know where you are? That's what God's wisdom does. It helps you to know where you are, where he is, what he's doing, and it changes who you are. Builds your faith, helps you to endure so not only does trials test our faith and trials make us run to God for wisdom, notice what else in verse 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. What is he talking about? Now all of a sudden he's talking about poverty and wealth. Here's what he's talking about. But in the middle of our trials, those who realize they have nothing in themselves to throw at this. That they have to rely on God completely and totally. Those are the ones whose faith is built and endure. He says here, and he, he, can't, he puts it in the context of someone who is poor versus someone who is rich. He says, Let the lowly brother, the, the impoverished brother, boast in his exaltation. What is it about the, the lowly, poor individual versus the one who's wealthy? Well, the one who's poor can't write a check. The one who's poor can't fill up their cabinets with food because they don't have any resources to get the food. So what does the the lowly brother or the lowly sister do? They seek God. They pray to God and say, God, I don't have any resources. God, I can't get around this. God, I can't get through this. So God, you've got the answer. I'm completely dependent on you. And in that, as God provides, because he always does, guess what? The lowly brother is exalted. But the rich brother or sister who does have the bank check and the bank full of money to be able to do whatever they want to do and buy whatever they need to buy, the problem is is they have a struggle relying on God. So what does God do for the rich person? God says to the rich person, well, let me remind you of something, and here's what he does. He says, the sun rises with its scorching heat. It withers the grass, the flower falls, beauty perishes, and so will the rich man and all of his wealth. So what does God say through James to the wealthy man? He says to the wealthy man, In the trial, you can't rely on anything else but God. I know you've got all this wealth, and I know you've got all this power, but that stuff will all fail you at the end of the day. What good is a billion dollars if you have terminal four cancer? It might buy you a nice doctor and a nice hospital, but if that doctor looks at you and says, not a thing we can do. What does a billion dollars do for a son or a daughter who's ran off and got into addictions, It might buy a nice rehab, but ultimately and it can never change the heart. James says that in the trial, the rich man relies on his money. The poor man should be relying on Jesus because he has nothing else to rely on. So what does God do? God humbles the wealthy man and reminds him that you're not actually in control with all of your money. The impoverished man who seeks Jesus because he has no other resources... Is exalted. Here's the point being trials teach us reliance on Him. What are you relying on? When the trial comes, where do you run? When the the bad doctor visit happens, where do you go? Tells a lot about what you're putting your trust in. The temptation here in this trial is self reliance, to rely on yourself. To, to just pull yourself up by your own intuition and ability and teaching and training. There's gonna be some places that you end up in trials that no matter how hard you try, you're not gonna be able to pull yourself out of it. And you're gonna need someone to help you. And that self-reliance flows from a place of, of pride and arrogance, that self-reliance flows from a, from a pride deeply seated with all, all of us. Oh, and we, we often say it this way, oh, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. Well, you know what that is? You know what that is? That's you trying to be self-reliant. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to bother anybody at church. Oh, I don't want to bother anybody with my problem. That's self-reliance, folks. Let's call that what that is. That's pride. If you need help, then reach out to somebody. To do anything else is to rely on yourself, and we know where that's going to lead you into more darkness and more pain. So trials teach us reliance. The temptation is to be self-reliant. Here's the last one. Look at verse, verse 12. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in a trial. For when he has stood the test, Look, notice that, when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life. So, so James says that if we'll continue to endure, we'll continue to, to let God build our faith through these things that have passed through his hands, then at the end of this journey there's going to be a crown. We often think of crowns as gold and jewels and I don't think that's what James was thinking because that wasn't his context. What his context was was a wreath that folks who were participating in games such as the Olympics, they place a wreath on the victor's head. But, but I think James is talking about something more than just a crown. I think he's talking about the gift of eternal life. He's saying that if you will keep allowing God to build you, strengthen you, and you'll keep enduring When we get to the end of this thing, you're going to finally find the peace and comfort you've been looking for. But then he says this, verse 13. And again, it seems like James is going off on another tangent. Verse 13, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see that word tempted? It's almost the same Greek word as the word for trials. And and the context of the scripture has to determine how we understand the word. So on the one hand, if you, if you do a word study on both of those Greek words, you'll find out that they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament for temptations and trials. Well, James says here that trials are to be something we rejoice in. Trials are something that builds faith. Trial is something that passes through the hands of God into our life as believers to help build our faith and strengthen our endurance. But now he starts talking about temptation. So if there's a difference between trials and temptations. Trials are from God for our good. What about temptations? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. First of all, James says, you can't accuse God of tempting you. God cannot be tempted, and God would never tempt you to do something evil or wrong or sinful. It's impossible. It's not part of who he is. It's not who his character is. He can't do it. It's impossible. Well, we would expect at this moment that James would say, okay, so, so trials come from God but, God, but Satan will take those trials, throw a temptation in there to divert you to short circuit the process. We would expect at this moment, James would say, but temptations come from Satan, but that's not what he says. It's, it's true, but that's not what he says. Notice this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Inside of every one of us is a desire. God placed it there as part of the image of God in us. It's not necessarily bad. You can have a desire to further your career. You can have a desire to raise your family well. You can have a desire, maybe for those of you who are single, a desire to be married, a desire to have a family. You can have a desire to to make enough income to support yourself and maybe be generous to others. All of these desires, you can have a desire from a sexual sense and that is to be experienced within marriage. But you also realize that all of those desires can be twisted and misapplied, and that's what temptation is for. Temptation doesn't come from God. It does come from Satan, but ultimately what James is talking about here is it lies inside of you. And it lies inside of me. He uses the words lured and enticed by his own desire. Those words, lured and enticed, if you look at those words, has the idea of, of hunting, a hunter, who's trying to lure prey into a trap with food or or something else. I I like to use the connotation of fishing because that's what I like to do. and I know many of you like to fish, but when when I'm fishing up in the mountains, if I can get the right fly on my line and I can present that fly just right on top of the water, in the water, that trout will come out. He won't even hesitate because it looks like food. It's something appealing. It's it's what he wants to eat. It's what it, it awakens a desire in him to feed, right? Now, if I just put an empty hook out there, he could care less. Now, you may have hooked some fish by mistake, by reeling in, you know, you have some live bait, you're reeling in, by, by mistake you hook a fish, doesn't have very often, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're trying to lure that fish to take a hook, and if that hook has nothing on it that's appealing to that fish, no desire is awakened inside that fish to eat. And so it is with you. There are things put in front of you, and oftentimes these things are put in front of you at the moment you're going through a trial, at the same moment that God is trying to build your faith to help you to grow up. We should not be surprised that at that same time, temptations are coming from all directions. It's always been amazing to me that a brother that I may be working with, counseling with, discipling with, this brother maybe has got a lot of things going on in his life. It's hard. It's difficult. A trial is what is happening. And at the same time, he's going through the trial. All of a sudden, some old flame from his past Some girl that he used to date in high school that he hadn't talked to in 20 years. Isn't it interesting that it's at that time he's going through the trial that all of a sudden on Facebook he gets a free request from somebody that he may still have a little fire for? Do you think that is happenstance? Do you think that's just pure circumstance? I've seen this a thousand times, not only in other people's lives, but in my own. But when you're walking through the trial, temptations begin to come. And what are the temptations trying to do? Awaken a desire inside of you to participate in something that brings destruction into your life. To short circuit what God is doing. To get you to step around what God is working in your life. The fact of the matter is, is we have no one to blame but ourselves. You've you've heard the saying, well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. He might have put something in your path, but it awoke something inside of you and you acted on it. It's not your mom and dad's fault. It's not your church's fault. Definitely not God's fault. It's not a lack of education or a lack of money. It's a choice you made. And you got on that. And when you make the choice, it short-circuits the work that God's doing in your life. You may have heard this name. His name is Andrew Brunson. He's a missionary, and he he was a missionary in Turkey for years, 20 years. Well, in 2016, he was captured and thrown in prison. And he spent over two years in prison, and he was in solitary confinement for over two years. He he was able to be released. I think it was in 2019 is when he got released um, through some political stuff that happened. was able to get him set free. But while he was there, he endured all kinds of pain and hardship. He was completely innocent. He'd done nothing wrong. The charges that they brought against him were completely made up. Now you would imagine that I think we have this in our mindset when we think about people who really suffer persecution that it's in those places of persecution in those dark prisons where the faithful of Jesus are there that in that cell they've got the just the, the, they can feel Jesus in the air. It's like Jesus is right there in the room with them. They, they, they can feel it, and they're, they're just empowered by it, and they're strengthened by it. But you would imagine that the presence of God in the room for someone who's suffering this kind of persecution for their faith would just have had to be palatable. You could just almost like reach out and touch God. Is that not what we often think about people who are in these types of real persecution? I want you to hear what he said. There's a YouTube video. He, he did a, he spoke at Wheaton College in 2019, it's on YouTube, I'd encourage you to watch it. This is what, what he said about those moments, long days, long hours in solitary confinement. Face down on the floor. Very little food, no sleep. Thinking that he's gonna be, in a, he's gonna die in prison, never gonna see his family again. All for the All for the reason that he was being faithful with the gospel in a place that needed to hear the gospel and now he's in prison and may never come out alive. Listen to what he said. He said, after a few days in prison, I completely lost the sense of God's presence. God was silent and he remained silent for two years. It's not what we were thinking, right? Maybe that describes you. You're not in a physical prison. But you're going through a trial. And you've been desperately, desperately trying to find God in the middle of it. God seems silent. Seems disconnected. Prayers aren't going above the ceiling. So in that moment, in, in that moment, would the, would the right course of action be to just give up on God? I mean, I mean if God's not going to come in here and fix this problem, then I'm just not going to follow him anymore. And by the way, I've been faithfully sharing the gospel. I've been going to the church with this gentleman. He's serving Jesus in a hard place. Wouldn't it be obvious or, or normal in that moment to say, Jesus, look at all the things I've done for you. Why will you not do this for me? Have you not been there? I have. Let's, let's strike a bargain, Jesus. He says, after two years, God was silent. Then listen to what he says. He says, there are some who go into the valley of testing and some do not make it out. He says, I was broken like I'd never been broken before. He said, I lay there alone in my solitary cell and I I had great fear and terrible grief and I was weeping uncontrollably. And the thought kept going through my mind where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And I opened my mouth as I wept aloud and I was surprised at what I heard come out of my mouth. I heard these words come out of my mouth. I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus. No comfort, no food, no bed, no family, no entertainment. In a situation where his life could end at any moment, God is distant, God is not there in the room, he can't feel him, can't sense him, but the only thing that he's holding on to in that moment is his love for Jesus in that moment. That was the the only anchor that he had, the only thing that he could, 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 could hold on to, and that was enough, because if you got Jesus, you've got all you need. And then he says this, he says, I thought, here is my victory. God, even if you are silent, I love you. Even if you let my enemy harm me, I love you. Even if I die in this cell, I love you. Even if it's stage four cancer, I love you. Even if my prodigal son or daughter never comes home, I love you. Even if in this dark place that my loved one is in, they don't come out, I love you. Even if My parents pass away, even if I lose all my friends, even if I'm mocked for loving Jesus, even if I attend that church, even if Jesus, I love you. Is that where you are today? The very trials that God is bringing into your life is to build that kind of faith. This this man could not have robbed at this place any other place but in that prison. And whatever prison you're in, God is up to something. Don't try to short-circuit that. Understand that your father is a good father. Find joy in the journey, even in the trials. And stop being lured to get around it. For the sake of comfort, happiness, other otherwise. Father, we seek your face because, Father, we know what, we're, we, know what we are capable of. And we know, Father, far too often we, we take the easy route rather than simply trust you with the trial. Father, no doubt, in this very room right now, temptations are arising. Temptation to ignore. Temptation to put on a mask. Temptation to downplay what they're going through. Temptation to just keep it to themselves. Temptation to rely on their own knowledge rather than rely on you. Father, that's all happening right now in this moment of spiritual warfare. James is going to teach us, Father, that faith is tangible. It's practical. And what can be more practical in this moment than to simply trust you in the trial to not be misled by lesser things? And Father, in doing so, Have our faith strengthened. Because the reality is, there's more trouble coming, more trials that we have to go through. And we're not done till we see you face to face between now and then. Build our faith, (laughs) give us joy, provide healing this morning where it's needed most. As Father, without You, we're nothing. May we not run towards the foolishness of this world. The only place we can run this morning is to You. And may we do that in this moment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.